You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Thanks, guys. Well, good morning, church family. Good morning, church family. There we go. All right. Good, good. Good to see you. It's so good to be together, to sing together, to worship together. Um, If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you as well. My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here. I get to lead us in vision and get the honor and privilege to serve as one of our preachers and so glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Jeremiah chapter 18. So go ahead and get your Bible out or get your phone out, your Bible open, get it out in front of you, Jeremiah chapter 18. While you turn there, I want to take a second and just mention one thing really quickly. When you walked in, you noticed on your row there were some of these little cards. Uh, Save the date reminder about our men's equip weekend that's coming up. You can think of it this way. It's like a men's retreat the whole weekend, except you don't have to sleep in a twin bed at some campground. You get to sleep in your own bed, but we get to spend a weekend together learning, growing, worshiping, having fun, building relationship. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a man in this church, even if you're new here, would you just prioritize this weekend? Would you just go ahead and get registered today? Uh, We did this two years ago, and it was just such a phenomenal uh, weekend that we got to spend together and just, you know, there's a lot going on, but many of you with your families, if you're, if you're married and kids, families or career, and this is a great opportunity for us just to kind of prioritize some time to be together as men and, and get before the Lord together. So I hope that you'll prioritize and join us November 5th and 6th. You can register online. Oh, look at that. There's a QR code. How about that? I just noticed that. You can just shoot that with your phone and you can register right now and pretend you're listening to me. So, um, all right, Jeremiah chapter 18, we've been working our way through Jeremiah. And over the last 17 chapters, what we've seen is that we've seen that God has, uh, through Jeremiah, God has been using Jeremiah, um, uh, and he has really been pointing out uh, Israel's failure, their sin, their idolatry, their spiritual apathy toward God. I mean, they were to be God's chosen covenant people, right? We have to understand this relationship to really understand Jeremiah. Right, we go all the way back in the, in the biblical story to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God makes this promise that, he would, uh, that through the seed of the woman, he would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he was going to do something through a son that would defeat sin, death, and evil and bring a blessing of redemption to the whole world. And we see that promise pl- played out uh, specifically with Abraham. God chooses Abraham and he says that he's going to bless Abraham and from his offspring, he's going to make a great and mighty nation. And through that nation, that blessing, Genesis 3.15, blessing of redemption, will go to the whole uh, world, to all the nations. But we get here at this point in history and in the biblical narrative, and things are not looking good. This nation, this offspring of Abraham, they are a sinful, um, idolatrous, rebellious people. They have turned from God, and we've seen it. Jeremiah has shown us from every angle over the last 17 chapters. Jeremiah has been working, God through Jeremiah, to really open uh, our eyes, and, and, and and for Judah to open their eyes to see themselves the way that God sees them, but they refuse to do so. And as we get to Jeremiah chapter 18, really the question that's before us is this. If you're taking notes, this is what it is. What does God do with sinful people? What does he do? How does God deal with such sinful people? Now, it's important for us as we approach this text and as we kick around this question that we don't just kind of view Jeremiah 18 as bystanders. So we don't just view it from a distance, right? We need to make sure that we don't kind of look at Judah's sin and Judah's struggle and think, well, 
Man, those stubborn people so dismissive of God. I mean, I can't, I can't believe how they could do that, you know? Like, I can't believe how they just, you know, worship the idols and the Baals and they just dismiss God's word. I can't, I can't believe how they broke the Sabbath we looked at last week and they showed up and just offered God half-hearted worship. I mean, I can't believe how they, you know, got so uh, enmeshed with foreign policy and so entangled in the politics of their day and didn't trust God. I mean, uh, we would never do that. W- would we? Right? Yeah, amen, yeah. And that's the point, right? That's the question that we're looking at. We're going to see in Jeremiah 18 kind of this object lesson. Uh, we'll see it in a second. But really the bigger object lesson is the people themselves. Uh, what do we learn from them? What does God do with sinful people like us? That's the question. What does he do? Let me pray and we'll look at the text. Almighty God, we thank you for this day, this holy day, this privilege to gather with your people around your word. And Lord, we open ourselves to you now. We pray you would speak to us. We pray that each person here would hear from you by your spirit, through your word, that you would teach us, you would instruct us, you would correct us, that you would lead us to repentance, that you would lead us to delight in you and in your glorious grace. I pray that, that, um, God, you would have your way with us this morning and that we would open our hearts and minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. Stop for a second. So we begin, God has a new word for Jeremiah. He has a new word for Judah. But he says, you won't get this word until you go on a field trip first. He sends him on a little bit of a field trip to the potter's house. Kiddos that are in here this morning, I hope that soon you can start having field trips again at school. There's nothing better than field trip day. I remember uh, I grew up near Houston, and so we did a lot of field trips to NASA, to the space station. And there's one thing to learn about things like gravity, you know, those kinds of things in the classroom from a textbook. It's a whole other thing to, as a kid to get to go to the, to, to the NASA uh, uh, headquarters in Houston and kind of see and experience and, and feel and, and touch and those kinds of things. I mean, we learn in a whole nother way like that. And so this is in a way what God's doing. He has a word for Jeremiah, but he invites him to do more than just hear it. He invites him to experience it. And so he sends him to the potter's house. Now, I'm just imagining here, Jeremiah's going, okay, Lord, he gets up, he goes to the potter's house, he walks in, potter's there, the text tells us, working at his wheel. I'm sure Jeremiah doesn't just stand off in the distance like a creeper. You know, I'm sure he likely strikes up a conversation with the potter. Um, you know, hey, what are you working on? They're talking, you know, maybe potter's like, hey, what are you interested in? Are you here to buy something? Jeremiah's like, no, I don't really know. God sent me here. And so what are you working on? Well, maybe let's uh, just kind of take some creative liberty here. Let's say that the, the potter says, oh, I'm working on a wine jar. I'm making a wine jar, this lump of clay on my wheel. My intention is to take it and to form it into a wine jar. And Jeremiah's sitting there watching, observing, listening, waiting. And then suddenly something happens. Look at verse 4. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled, underline that word, was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Look at verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, he says, look, see, see yourselves. 
Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So what happens? Well, the wine jar that the potter is working on, the vessel, whatever it might be, it isn't coming together the way it's supposed to, right? I mean, you imagine the potter here. He's got this intention for the clay, and it's just not coming together. He's wrestling with it. He's, I'm sure he's trying different tactics. He's putting more water on the clay. He's working it. He's mending it. But it's just not coming together. Despite his best efforts, it seems there's nothing more that he can do. Why? Because the clay, the text tells us, is spoiled. Perhaps your version of the Bible, the word is marred. And the Hebrew word is actually really important for us because it tells us something that's significant. It's this idea that the clay itself is destroyed. It's this idea that the clay itself is wrong. Something's wrong with it. Maybe there's impurities that have gotten into the clay. And so the clay isn't just kind of going the way it's supposed to go because there is something in the clay and it's not forming the way it's supposed to form. Maybe there's too many rocks in the clay, and so it's not shaping up into this wine jar the way it's supposed to shape up. But the Hebrew word there that comes in our English Bible as spoiled or marred actually makes it really, really clear that it's not the potter that has made the mistake. It's not the potter's hands that have misshaped. It's the clay. Something is wrong with the clay. And so I'm sure that Jeremiah is on his field trip watching all this. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, I wonder what the potter's going to do in this situation. I see him kind of wrestling with the clay a bit. It's not coming together. What does he do? Does he just toss out the clay and start over? No. What does he do? He smashes it down. He begins to rework the spoiled clay into something new. He takes the lopsided jar that refused to come together, and the text tells us he repurposes it according to his will. It seemed good to him. It actually pleased the potter. The potter's not frustrated and mad. It pleases the potter to take this messed up clay and make it into something new. And suddenly, the purpose of the field trip starts to make sense to Jeremiah. Israel is like the clay. God had a clear intention for them. They were to be his people through which the promise and blessing of redemption would flow to all the earth. But yet God has been working with them over time and over history. And in this particular moment, their kings have gone so wicked. And rather than administering God's law and, and, and leveraging God's blessing and his people and the land to be a light to the nations, they have defiled the land. Things have gone wrong. God's been working with them, but they have become so ruined and so spoiled, so filled with impurities. But God wants them to know something with clarity. That's why he sends Jeremiah on a field trip to see it, to feel it, to sense it, to experience it. He is like this potter. And if they would turn to him and repent, he could take the spoiled mess of who they are and remake them and repurpose them into something beautiful. And it would please him. It would give him great honor and joy to do so. What a lesson that we get. You see, this is the point. God tells Jeremiah, go and give this message to the Israelites. And we'll get their response to this message in a moment. But for now, I want us to sit with this image. I want us to sit with this metaphor because it's really powerful and, and, and it's, it's got a really clear, simple message that we need to receive. And it's this. God is the potter and humanity, we are the clay. God is big. God is the sovereign. God is the shaper and the willer of all things. Verse 7 through 11 in the text, you can look down there. I won't read it yet, but it goes on to show us that 
God is not only sovereign over individual lives, over my life and your life, but God is also sovereign over nations and over history and over whole families and over businesses. He is the potter shaping and directing all things. And the image of the clay in his hands is meant to open our eyes to the truth that God is mighty over us. God is mighty over you. He has all authority. See, what we need to receive from this metaphor is a high view of God. God is big and sovereign and mighty. And we are small. Humanity, we are small. Like the clay, we are made from dirt. Like the clay, our little lives are at the mercy of his hands. Like the clay, we are ruined by sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, this analogy, it provokes a small view of man. Don't mishear me. Not an insignificant view of man. There is significance in each one of us. We are all made in the image of God, but compared to a holy, mighty God, us, small, little, sinful clay, we are but We are small, we are but clay. And so we need to acknowledge this truth before we move any further. God is big, God is the sovereign. We are small, we are in his hands. We need to acknowledge also how backwards this sounds. Like it's possible for you just to kind of hear that and be like, oh yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, God's big, we're small. But it's not the world that we're living in. That message, that truth is not the current that we're swimming in. See, this current culture that we live in, this thing sounds so backwards to our current culture. The culture tells us the exact opposite. The message of the culture is loud and it's shaping us, even as Christians. It tells us that we are at the center of the world, that humanity, that we're at the center of the world, that you and I are at the center of the world. The the, the message of the culture tells us that we are powerful, independent beings. We are swimming in this current that tells us that we can make ourselves, that we, the Western mindset is that we are self-made people. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make of our lives whatever it is that we want to make of our lives. Go out there and do it. It's pretty different than your clay in the hands of a potter, (laughs) shaping your life, mighty over your life. We're told that we can be self-ruled people. We can be self-ruled people. We can govern our lives. We can do whatever we want, when we want, whatever uh, kind of makes us happy, you know? Follow your truth that we can self-govern. That's the narrative of the culture. That's a pretty different word than what we get from Jeremiah. We're told that even when we make a mess of our lives, because by the way, we're bad lords and we're bad rulers of our own lives. So when we make a mess of our lives, we're even told that we can self-redeem. That if we just have the right opportunities and, and, and resources at our hands, maybe the next job or the next promotion or the next relationship or the next move, the next city, we can actually redeem ourselves. And this idea of the sovereign self, we actually deep down know, number one, that it's not true. We actually know that it's not good news. We really do. We know this is not true. We know that we're small. We know that, we, that we, we know that we're not who we should be, who we pretend to be. We know that we're not who we could be. We know that we're broken. And we also know that it's not good news. I mean, I've had some conversations recently with some people who are really struggling with where they are in their life and talking about how, you know, if I just would have made this decision back here. I think all of us are kind of haunted deep down. Well, we, if we think we run and rule and shape our own lives, I think we're all kind of haunted deep down. Like, what if I would have made that choice, you know? Or what if I would have taken that job? Or what if I would have married that other person? <laughs> what if I would have gone to that other school? I wonder how that 
would have turned out. In fact, I saw a, a, a preview for a new TV show that's coming out that basically like plays on these what ifs. Humanity, we are haunted deep down by this truth that we know that we're not actually good governors and rulers and shapers of our own life. We know that we're fallen, that we make mistakes. And again, remember the purpose of Jeremiah's ministry and even this object lesson and this word, the purpose of Jeremiah is to help sinful people see themselves clearly so that they can turn from sin and self and live in the blessing and the grace of God through repentance. And so we need to hear this word for ourselves on a personal level. We need to hear that we are much smaller than we think, that God is the sovereign, he is the potter, we are clay, and we are at the mercy of of his hands. You see, this truth, it should do three things for us if we really receive it. The first thing it should do for us is it should humble us. It should humble us. If this is true, God is big, he's the sovereign, he's shaping and willing all things, including us in our lives. We are but mired clay in his hands, needy and desperate and dependent upon his redeeming power. If this is true, it should cause us to realize we're much smaller than we think. I'm reminded of this every time I get on an airplane with a window seat. You know what I'm talking about? And you take off, and all of a sudden you kind of change perspectives, and you look down on the interstate, and you see all the little cars, kind of tiny little cars going on the interstate, right? When you're in that car, you don't feel so small, do you? But when you're up here, you're like, man, I'm, I'm pretty tiny. <laughs> and, and this is just like one part of the world and one little blip of history that I'm living in. See, this truth should humble us. We can do less than we think. We can troll less than we think. We should be humbled. It should also sober us. God is bigger and mightier than we often acknowledge. We fail to live with an awareness of his might and his power and his holiness over us. You see, this was Israel's problem. For them, God was kind of just there. He was a, in the sidecar for them. He was an accessory for them. He wasn't central in their lives. They didn't acknowledge his power and his might and his holiness and live with reverence and fear and devotion to him because of who he is and what he's like and the power and the authority that he has. He was just kind of always there. And many of us, we live our lives the same way. You see, this ought to awaken us to the power and might of God. It should awake us from our slumber of self-dependence and self-sufficiency. But most importantly, this truth it should deeply encourage us. It should deeply encourage us. Don't miss the important part of the object lesson. Not only is the potter sovereign, not only do his hands shape and determine, but he is a willing redeemer. Don't miss that in the image. He is a sovereign redeemer. He's willing in his redemption. He reworks the spoiled clay. In fact, the text tells us that it seemed good to him. It brought him pleasure to do so. Don't miss this. This is the message for us and for Israel. If you see yourself correctly and acknowledge and are humbled by and are sobered by the fact that you are but spoiled clay and you entrust your hands, yourself, through repentance to the potter's hands, he can and he will delight to remake you. Not because of you, but because of who he is, because he's the potter, and this is who he is, because of uh, your life is in his sovereign hands. Don't miss this. The potter doesn't toss out, but he reworks and he repurposes the clay into a new creation. It's a beautiful image. It's really powerful. It means commitment and care from the potter. Some of you, it would just be an encouragement to your soul to remember and believe the commitment and the great care that God has provided in your life. 
that you are his workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It means time smoothing and working the clay into his desire. It means the clay being stretched and smashed. Some of you maybe feel that way this morning, that that's what's happening in your life, kind of being stretched maybe, being smashed a little bit. But we need to remember and receive the good news. Why? It's because he's working something new, something better. He's working transformation in the vessel. Will you let that truth encourage you this morning? That this is what God does with repentant people. People who see themselves and acknowledge their sin. He reworks their lives and their brokenness for his glory. He redeems sin for their good. This God, the God of the Bible, he heals wounds of the broken for their joy. that good news? He repurposes pain for noble uses. He gives of himself to redeem and rework sinful people like you and me. We are the clay, spoiled and marred. He is the potter, sovereign, redeemer, who delights to rework broken things. This is the point of the image, to show us who God is and to help us see him and ourselves correctly. And this truth of Jeremiah Chapter 18, verse 1 through 6, this truth is put so fully and so clearly on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The same heart of God, the same reality of who God is we see in the face of Jesus Christ, the potter who is willing to do the work that was necessary to redeem spoiled clay. It points us so clearly to the gospel, to a God who would take on flesh and who would willingly, joyfully, gladly, live the life that you and I couldn't live, who would give of himself, living, dying, rising again, so that our lives could be remade and repurposed. God is so willing to redeem sinners like you and me that he did not spare his own son. That's the point of this metaphor, that we would see this heart of God. And I'm not, I'm not gonna move on yet. <laughs> it's so powerful. I want us to truly take in the full encouragement of this image. Some of you need to remember this morning that this is who God is. You need to remember what God has done in your life. You need to remember who you were, who you would have been. You need to remember the impurities and the cracks and the brokenness, what your life, where your life was headed before the potter took his redeeming hands and went to work on your life. You need to remember his grace in your life. What a sovereign redeemer that you, that you call father. It's an amazing truth. There's some of you this morning that there's maybe some spoil or some brokenness that you're experiencing right now. There's some brokenness that you're experiencing right now. Maybe it's of your own doing. Maybe it's the consequential nature of your own sin. Some of you are carrying some, some brokenness in here this morning and you're aware of it. You're coming in here and you're thinking, I don't even know if I should even be here worshiping a holy God because of what's gone on in my life, the things that happened this morning, maybe this weekend, maybe last week, maybe this month. And you need to remember who he is. He is a willing redeemer who loves to forgive broken people who turn to him. Some of you this morning are experiencing the pain of life in a broken world. You've been wounded, perhaps even by other people's sin, and you've, you're limping in here this morning, or you're, you're experiencing suffering because this world that we live in isn't what it's supposed to be, and you're experiencing the effects of life in a broken world, and you need to remember this morning, believe afresh, and see what God can do with your brokenness, and believe what he can do with your suffering when you entrust it to him, and when you keep coming to the pot, or even if he's stretching you. Even if he's kind of smashing some things down right now, you need to remember how he works. New Testament tells us that we 
are jars of clay. We're still weak and we're still fragile, but he has put within us beautiful treasure, his spirit. He's united us with his son. What's the point of Jeremiah's field trip? God is big. God is real. He has all authority over our lives and over this world. We are but small, broken fragments, yet God is a willing redeemer. And when we see ourselves correctly, when we acknowledge our need, when we turn to him, there is nothing in our lives that he cannot repurpose. Amen? I mean, I love verse 6. Just sit with verse 6. Look at the question. from Hear God's heart. Can I not do with you as the potter has done? Man, what a Savior. What a God. You see, the forgiveness that you need this morning the healing that you need, the hope that you need, the encouragement that you need, all of it has been purchased for you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 tells us that in him, in Jesus, there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness that you need, the redemption that you need, it's all purchased for you already. Will you entrust yourself and your life into the hands of the potter? Will you this morning see yourself, acknowledge your sin and your weakness, and will you say to him this morning, mend me, O God. Mend me, O God. Heal me, O God. Forgive me, O God. Rework me, O God. Stretch me, O God, and watch him do it. Watch him warm up your heart. Watch yourself be filled by the Spirit with the love of the Father. That's the invitation for us from the metaphor to see Jesus and to see the heart of God in the gospel for broken people like you and me. But what about Israel, right? We're, we're looking at their story. We're learning from their story. What about them? How do they receive this message from God? Will they, will they acknowledge their sin? Will they turn to God? Will they entrust themselves to the redeeming hands of the potter? Or will they go on ignoring Jeremiah's words? Let's look back at the text. Look at verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent or turn, it's the word there, of the disaster that I intended to do. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, that I will bless it and establish it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good. I will turn from the good that I intended to do to it. And so again, we see the sovereignty of God over people and nations. Again, we see his willingness, the willingness of God to redeem and bless and establish the repentance He's saying to them, my intention for you, Israel, it was to build and to plant, to bless you and to work through you and to redeem all nations through you. But you've refused to acknowledge your sin. You've ignored my voice. And so not only, listen to this, don't miss this. The potter is saying, not only do I, as the potter, have the authority to use my hands to redeem, but I have the authority as the potter to use my hands to shape judgment against you. That's what he's saying. I am the potter. You are the clay. Here's the point. God will indeed be glorified. That's the primary purpose of all things. God will indeed be glorified. But our response to him, that's what we're seeing in the text, that there's actually this reactive, redeeming sovereignty of God. It's a mystery, but it's in the text. 
our response to God, whether it's repentance or lack thereof, will determine the route by which God is glorified through our lives. Do you see that in the text? God couldn't be any more clear here. He's saying that we have the capacity through repentance to either avert God's judgment or through lack of repentance to forfeit God's abounding grace. What will Judah do? Look at verse 11 and 12. Now therefore, in light of who I am, the potter, sovereign, hands that can redeem or hands that will judge, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping, potter, forming, making disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one. There's an individual call here for every person among Judah. Return every one from his evil ways and amend your ways and your deeds. I want you to know something. In the, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, this is God's last and final plea for repentance. Jeremiah has been proclaiming this message for years. Years. Verse 12. But they say, this is in vain. We will follow our own plans. We will, everyone, each one of us, act according to the stubbornness of our evil hearts. They say to God, no way. They say to God, What's the point? In fact, at the end of ch chapter 18, you can look down and see it. They actually try and kill Jeremiah. They essentially say to him, we are sick of all this God talk. We're fed up with it. Enough already. We're going to do things our way. I'm going to shape my own life. I'm going to live life my way. God will not have the final word in my life. I will. It's essentially what they say. And man, what a tragedy this is. What an absolute tragedy this is when a human heart makes this decree. It is an absolute tragedy for a human being to forfeit the mercy and the grace of God. What a tragedy it is for a human life to never know the blessing and the intimate love of the Father. To forfeit it. To reject it. What a tragedy it is to reject the power and the beauty of the presence of God in our lives. To turn from him. To be the first to say, nope, God, I'm done. I'm going my own way. What a tragedy. Remember our original question that we started with? What does God do with sinful people? Well, the text has been clear. This is what God does with sinful people. He offers them redemption. He offers them redemption. And he's done it so clearly in sending his own son. Trust him. Submit to him. Give your life fully over to him. Trust him. Receive his grace. But what if it's refused? What if the grace of God is refused? Then what does God do? Look at verse 15. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways. So not only have they worshipped these false gods, but these false gods have led them so sideways and backwards and busted them up. Look, it says in the ancient roads and they walked into the side roads, not the highways. They've gotten so far from me. They've gotten so deep into the depths of brokenness that things that make no sense seem to be true and things that are true seem to make no sense. Do you see it? Do you see it? Making their land a horror 
just making God's world a complete disaster, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. What a mess. Verse 17, like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. What does God do with people who refuse his grace? God hands them over to the enemy. Judgment. For Judah, the Babylonians are coming. They will soon be sent away in exile, sent away from God's presence, God's blessing, God's place, into exile. You want it? Go. You want a godless existence? Have it. What a tragedy. In fact, in chapter 19, God sends Jeremiah back to the potter's house. And it's interesting what happens next. Um, there are some scholars that think that, uh, that God instructs him to go back and, and buy maybe that, um, that thing that the potter was remaking. Um, some scholars select that perhaps it was even something pretty expensive, which is the beauty of the metaphor. Hey, this is what I intended you to be, and I can actually even remake you, though it takes time and journey and smashing and working and mending, but that's how powerful the potter is. I can make you into something beautiful. And he instructs Jeremiah in chapter 19 to go back to the potter's house and buy a vessel. Some scholars think it's that remade vessel. And then he tells him to go in front of the leaders of Judah and the kings and the priests and hold up that vessel. And Jeremiah smashes it. It's this picture of like, this is what you could have been, but instead you've chosen destruction. That's what you've chosen. That's what you wanted. Exiled out of my presence, like this jar, broken and scattered. You see, let the story of Israel be an object lesson for us about another day of judgment that is coming. What does this teach us? It's that God will be glorified through the lives of all people one way or another. We are all vessels in the potter's hand, created by him, for him, for his glory. And we will either be redeemed for his glory or we will be judged. He will either be honored and lifted up by his glorious grace in our lives or he will be honored and lifted up by his righteous judgment of sin and human pride one way or the other. So in light of this truth, I want to make two very simple calls. Two very simple calls. Number one, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus, you have experienced the grace of God, would you be in absolute awe of that reality? It has been a free gift of God for you that God has taken his hands and he's redeemed your life and he's promised that he will finish the work that he started in you, that he will make you into something beautiful in Christ Jesus. He will never leave you or abandon you and you've done nothing to deserve it. It's not because God looked at you and he saw kind of in you some kind of superior, superior morals, not that he looked at you and saw some, hey, that guy's got potential to have some buttoned up spirituality. No, none of it. It was a free gift. Would you be humbled by this? Would you be absolutely in awe? Would you allow this truth to create an explosion of praise in your heart for who God is, what he's done in your past, and what he's promised for your future. What a savior. And if you are not a Christian this morning, would you repent and believe? I plead with you. Hear the word of God, who he is, and what he can do and will do. Would you turn to him? Would you entrust your life to him? Would you receive his free grace? If you do, and if you will, his grace will touch everything in your life for the rest of your days. Do not let this moment pass by without seeing God for who he is, seeing yourself for who you are, and receiving his loving kindness. What a savior he can be for you today. Let's pray. 
Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.